0: We spend upwards of $60 billion on medical research in the U.S. each year. Does all this money benefit patients? You're listening to Reach MD, a channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing current therapies for new uses. And my guest is Dr. David A. Greenberg. Director, Division of Statistical Genetics, Professor, Department of Biostatistics at Mailman School of Public Health and New York State Psychiatric Institute, Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in New York. Dr. Greenberg and I are discussing some of the competing priorities in medical research. Dr. Greenberg, welcome to Reach MD.
1: Thank you very much, Bruce.
0: So, who are the major players in medical research these days? If you want to
1: speak just about the United States, there's NIH which has supported medical research in this country since the early 50s and has done a stunning job of producing many, many of the results and the findings that have led to vast improvement in medical care in this country. There are the drug companies that produce, obviously, drugs, making use of the medical research very often that comes from NIH and also some of their own medical research. And then there's the NIH itself, which has a small in-house, as it were, set of laboratories where a lot of good research is carried out. The NIH supports most of the academic research, particularly the basic research that's carried out at universities. When I say basic research, research that is not necessarily directed immediately towards treatments or patient cures, I'm talking about the research that leads to the basis on which those cures are eventually developed.
0: What do you think are the priorities and motivations of the NIH, their in-house labs, the drug companies, and academia, and how do they mix in with each other?
1: Well, the drug companies, it's very clear they're profit-making organizations. Their motivation is to come up with drugs that will sell and that will make the profit for the shareholders. In academic institutions, researchers such as myself and most of my colleagues are interested in the world and how it works in how the body works, where diseases come from, what causes diseases, and how they manifest and how they can be interrupted to eventually lead to a cure. Now, in basic research, of course, as I said, you're not necessarily looking directly at the disease, but you're looking at something that's a pre-disease. So, for example, we're looking for genes for epilepsy And we know that when we find that gene, it's not necessarily immediately going to suggest a cure. We have to find out what the gene is doing. And that requires basic molecular biology research to be able to find out what's going on. So from the academic world, it's interest in how things work and interest in basic functioning of the machinery of the body. NIH, as a government institution, supports a lot of that research with many dollars, less now than in the past, to allow basic research to go forward. Before NIH, medical research in general was a haphazard finding. For example, Banting and Best, who discovered insulin, one of the great discoveries of the 20th century, I don't think they had NIH support, but they certainly had little money to do the work that they did. Those players all work together in their own way. Drug companies are supporting some kinds of research now more frequently than they used to, but most of the research in this country, most of the research that I believe leads to medical discoveries, has been and continues to be supported by NIH, even though those dollars tend to be dwindling
0: nowadays. What kind of research is most likely to get approved by those NIH panels? When you submit a research grant to the NIH, what's most likely to get approved?
1: That changes with the fashion, I'm sorry to say, and the world tends to be very technology-driven. So right now, if you're in the field of genetics, if you were to propose a genome-wide association study, you probably have a reasonable chance of getting that funded than if you propose using some older and better-tried method, because people like the new and the novel in hopes that it's going to lead to breakthroughs, because basic research, or I should say all research, is constantly running up against roadblocks to further progress. And you're always looking around for the newest thing that's going to be able to get you over the hump and be able to move forward on your work because you're constantly being stopped by technical problems or by things that don't exist yet. Until we put signposts all over the genome, it was a real problem being able to try and map genes for disease. When I first started, there were only 30 markers in the entire human genome. And shortly thereafter, there were a few thousand. And now there are hundreds of thousands of markers that we can use. So being able to overcome those obstacles is important, and NIH knows that the obstacles are always foremost in people's minds. They want to support research that are going to overcome the obstacles to be able to move forward in trying to cure disease, which is the NIH's ultimate goal.
0: If you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and I'm speaking with Dr. David A. Greenberg of Mailman School of Public Health and New York State Psychiatric Institute, Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in New York, and we're talking about some of the competing priorities in medical research. You've done computer simulation for genetic analysis. Is that a new burgeoning field, and is that something that NIH is interested in supporting?
1: To a certain extent. I would not say it's a burgeoning field. There are very few people who use computer simulation as I have tended to use computer simulations, which is to test various propositions about what might and what might not be true. The greatest use of computer simulation nowadays is to come up with p-values. That is, those values that tell you whether your statistical result is significant or not significant. This is actually a very difficult problem to solve. If you're working with a very complex system and you get a result... Is that result important or is it entirely predictable that it would happen no matter what the background is? Computers allow us to figure out how important or how significant a result that we have gotten is because there's no, for many of these results, there's no statistical theory to guide us as to whether the result we got is meaningful or not.
0: And when you're one of the only people doing a certain kind of work like the computer simulations that you do, does that make it more likely or less likely for you to get funded by the NIH?
1: I would say overall it makes it less likely. Innovation is not necessarily rewarded by any granting agency because it's untried. I remember once sitting on a study section, that is a study section with funding grants, where the grants that were being reviewed were all supposed to be high-risk grants, like somebody would have a new idea and writes a grant to try to pursue the idea to see if it's right. And even though the grants that were being reviewed were labeled as high-risk grants, most of them did not get through because they were considered to be high-risk grants so that they were considered too unlikely to succeed to fund. So it's very difficult to where the draw the line is when is an idea important and new and exciting and when is an idea outlandish. My feeling is we should be funding more outlandish ideas that at least have some basis than perhaps we are right now. Of course, right now the dollars that are available for for funding grants is much lower than it has ever been in the past. There are fewer grants being funded overall, and that makes life very difficult for researchers.
0: You use the words reward to talk about NIH. Let's talk about reward systems and what people do to get rewarded at their institutions or organizations. So, so what do you do in order to get acknowledged or to get tenure at an institution? What do you have to do?
1: Well, the idea is that you, in the traditional academic mold, you teach, and you do research. Nowadays in academia, and I speak now not of the classic humanities, but I speak of in the medical area because that's what I'm most familiar with, getting grants and bringing grants into the institution is the way to survive. As long as you're bringing in your own salary, they're not going to throw you out because every dollar that you bring in means a some proportion goes to the university, and so that supports the university and supports your research. So the motivation is to bring in grant dollars, either from industry or from preferably from NIH. And for that, you get rewarded of eventually getting salary increases, perhaps more lab space if you bring in more money, and being able to hire more people to get your work done. That's the overall reward system. Intellectually, of course, being able to make discoveries is the real payoff for somebody who's really interested in the work.
0: And what about publishing? How important is it for you to publish your results?
1: Oh, it's extremely important to publish the results. The primary yardstick is to bring in grants. The secondary yardstick is to publish papers, presumably in important journals, although with the advent of the internet, the particular journal has become somewhat less important. But by publishing papers, that allows you to uh, support your grant work. It shows that you are productive and that you have a track record of success in showing that you can do the work that you say you're going to do when you write your next grant.
0: And do you think that this cycle of grant publication sometimes pushes researchers away from novel research that might help patients sooner because they know that it won't get funded?
1: I would say that that's true. A lot of the really good research that's done from what I've seen is, as they say, bootlegged. A grant is supported to do one thing and a little bit of money is siphoned off quite legitimately, to pursue an idea that the researcher has in the hopes of being able eventually to expand it and write a grant. I. I. Robbie, the famous physicist in the early 20th century, for example, would do all the work, at least this is my, according to his autobiography, would do all the work, show that something is true, and then he would write a grant to get it funded. And this worked fine until one of the grants he wrote, somebody said it can't be done, even though he had already done the work. So you have to be able to support what you're going to do in one way or another. And new ideas, when they come along, you have to be able to pursue them. So that's in general what most people do to try and pursue a new ideas that they get and eventually being able to build up enough background to be able to fund the individual idea on its own.
0: So other than bootlegging this from other research, what other ways could we potentially fix the system to make this more attuned to getting things to patients and supporting this innovative research?
1: I wish I had an answer to that. The state of medical research in this country, uh, in the United States right now, is not very good because of the decrease in grant dollars which NIH is supporting research. So many of my colleagues are looking at questions of survival rather than innovation. Laboratories are closing. Um, People are having to let the staff go. Research is being cut down as a result of it. And I would say the situation is probably getting close to dire. There are very few new researchers in the medical area, particularly in medical schools as PhDs and researchers, that is faculty members in medical schools. The numbers have been plunging. And I am very concerned about the health of medical research in this country, which is one of the glories of the United States in the past 60 years. Most of the medical research, most of the medical advances in the world have occurred because of support from NIH. And it would be a tragedy to see it decrease to nothing.
0: In 2007, the U.S. spent over $60 billion on medical research, and only 23 new drugs were approved by the FDA, and none of them had a huge impact on any patient population. Is there something we can do to rework priorities and reward systems to get better treatments and cures to patients faster and more economically? I want to thank my guest, Dr. David A. Greenberg, for helping us take a look at these provocative questions. I'm attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that repurposes existing treatments for new uses. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.